4: You ready, Jane? We gotta, I'm here. Yeah. We got focus. I'm gotta I'm get. focused. All right. Yep. Let's do it. Let's do it. Da, 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 da. Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Glacius here with Jane Kostin, Dara Lind. Dara's got a cool, a cool scoop this week. Yeah. I want to talk about. So it's about the immigration, the asylum. <laughs> um, but so let's let's get some some background because yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. the story's already there. We, we're, right. we're not exactly breaking news on the podcast, but this has to do with asylum officers who work for U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Services. Right. And like what like like what is that? Like I've heard <laughs> of ICE. I know right. the Border Patrol. What's this other immigration agency?
2: Right. So when. The Department of Homeland Security was created after 9-11. They split up what had been the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which was like the one immigration agency, into three parts. Uh, Customs and Border Protection does border stuff. Uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, does enforcement in the quote-unquote interior of the US. And everything regarding legal immigration or what is called immigration benefits, like getting an immigration status, right, right, was U.S. citizenship and immigration services.
3: So if you are, for instance, applying for permanent residency, you yeah, deal exactly. with US- UCIS and you go to their offices to do the biometrics appointments, which involve fingerprinting. And then you go to Virginia and someone interviews you and asks and you
2: really personal ooh, questions. Sorry, they,
3: Jane is coming from the perspective of having done this for her spouse. Yes.
2: So marriage for, marriage applications are their own
3: kind of... Yes, yes. If you've ever used the term green card marriage, which the implication that that is somehow easy, you are an idiot. Um, But yeah,
2: so so this gets a little more complicated when we're talking about asylum, because asylum by definition is somebody who is already in the U.S. who is seeking a different legal status than the one they currently have or who is coming to the U.S. and doesn't have legal status. So while this is there's like one process for somebody who is coming to the U.S. with some other kind of like if you're coming to the U.S. on a student visa and then when you get here, you say, hey, I would like to seek asylum. A change in That's, visas. Yeah, that is a different because, because you know, a student visa, you're only going to be allowed to stay for as long as your visa works. You're going to have to go back and all that kind of thing. Um, whereas asylum is an expedited, you know, you can apply for a green card after a very short period of time. You can get government benefits if you qualify for them, et cetera. So, that's kind of one side of the process. But what's what's particularly relevant given the current, like, unprecedented numbers of Central American families uh, and large numbers of, sil- of asylum seekers coming into the U.S. through Mexico, what's particularly relevant here is the process for when you have somebody who's coming into the U.S. without papers. And then when, you know, apprehended or when presenting themselves at a port says, I am here because I want to seek asylum. Right. Uh, th- what happens then is that there's a, you know, you can't just like it's not just like, oh, you say you want to seek asylum. Here's your asylum application. We'll see you in you know, two years for your hearing before a judge. In general, like the general process here is you have a screening interview that's supposed to determine whether you have a credible fear of persecution in your home country. That screening interview is done by a trained asylum officer who's supposed to be somebody who like understands how to conduct a non-adversarial interview to like elicit things that could be discussions of, of traumatic or really difficult experiences and who is trained in the kinds of things that are required to figure out whether you're being persecuted as part of a specific group and how to talk about that, like how to translate the experiences of a person who doesn't really know American asylum law at all into the legalese that is required to say, like, here is how this person fits into the statute that says you can seek asylum.
4: And the sort of presumption here, right, underlying this is that like not that many people would be seeking Asylum. That is and true. And it's sort of supposed to be a like a careful process. Right. Yeah.
2: But, but at the initial screening phase, the prime directive really is in the initial phase is that you don't want to return somebody to a country where they're going to be imperiled or persecuted. Right. right? Like it's that is kind of the bedrock principle of asylum law. And so while. The kind of virtue of this screening interview as a pre-interview, essentially, like a pre-assessment, is that you can say, you know what, I'm not like doing a full on the spot, yes, here is your asylum, but I can say, yeah, there's enough of a case here that you have like a significant possibility Mm -hmm. that you're going to be – um that you're going to be able to to make a good case so you can say yes I'm passing you through you can now fill out your full asylum application before a judge what the trump administ- the trump administration sees that as the problem right they see like these passage rates of you know like 75 to 80% for credible fear screenings and that a lo- a much lower percentage of Central Americans ultimately get asylum through a judge, and say, "Well, the rest of these people must be lying," which is an inference that like doesn't take into account a lot of things. But that gap is the pro- one of the pro- things that they're trying to remedy with like all of the stuff they're doing right now to kind of crack so, down. So, on the so,
4: so, what here. are the numbers? So, uh, a yeah, hundred yeah. asylum claims, seventy to eighty of them are said to have credible fear right. and then out of that group how many out of
2: that it's like well it's often something like 15 to 20 ultimately get asylum but the reason that that's not a great metric is that once you've like passed your pre-screening and you're in front of a judge you can say hey actually I've talked to a lawyer and they say that I qualify for this other immigration status instead or like you know the the judge will say, will say, you know what? I have a jillion and a half cases on my plate. This is not something that I think is honestly that important to resolve. We're going to administratively close this case. Like there are other things that are good for the immigrant that aren't going to sh- that like don't show up if you're just looking at. Did you ultimately get asylum granted to you by a judge? So the question of how many of these people are ultimately found are ultimately ordered removed is a different question that we don't have a tremendously good answer to. Mm-hmm. So that's you know that's kind of the data geek caution. But one of the ways that the Trump administration is trying to deal with the gap between the like seventy to eighty and the fifteen to twenty is that they're doing this thing called the migrant protection protocols or remain in Mexico, where they're saying okay you've come into the US, you've said you want to seek asylum, we've like started your file, we've given you a court date, you're now going to go back to Mexico to wait for that court date. And, you know, on the day of your court hearing, you're going to show up at this port, we're going to like bus you in, you're going to have your court hearing, and then you're going to go back to Mexico again. And that's going to continue until the judge either says, yes, you get asylum, or no, you now have to go back to your home country. So they're doing this based on a weird provision of immigration law that I've literally talked to people who were like, At INS at the time, who went went at the time that this was enacted, that go I have no idea what this was supposed to do. Like I just don't remember it. Um, But it's expanded. There's currently a lawsuit because of course there's a lawsuit uh, in the Ninth Circuit, and a lower court judge said, "Now you got to put this on hold." The Ninth Circuit is currently, as we speak, and like maybe there will have been a ruling by the time this goes live, uh, letting it remain in effect while it considers whether to let the lower court ruling stand for now. Anyway. you may have noticed that, like, the kind of wait process doesn't involve the, hey, do you – the kind of typical asylum pre screening right? People are actually automatically presumed to be able to make asylum claims. They're just skipped right to the judge phase. But that's because they're being sent back to Mexico in the meantime. The role that asylum officers play in this MPP thing is – If somebody volunteers to a border agent, "Hey, I'm worried about going back to Mexico. Please don't send me there." Then they get a pre-screening or a screening with an asylum officer to determine whether they are more likely than not to be to be persecuted if they're sent back to Mexico. It's a different standard from credible fear. It's a much higher standard. Uh, It's something that asylum officers aren't used to, and there are already kind of questions that have been raised by legal experts about like. If you don't announce to somebody, hey, we're going to send you back to Mexico, do you have a problem with that? How do they even know to say, I'm worried about going back to Mexico? They think they're seeking asylum in the U.S. They're worried about persecution in their home countries. There are already questions about even how many people get to the asylum officer screening phase, but I got a couple of tips that uh, there was a lot of weird secrecy around this among asylum officers that, like, people were not comfortable with the training. And the asylum officer union had who I talked to said, "Yeah, we're really, really worried that this is kind that this this is something we're raising the fire alarm about. Like, this is a we're worried that this is a violation of a lot of things that we're trained to do as professionals. If you are a civil servant, you understand how weird this is. If you're not, uh, you may not understand how weird this is. Like." civil servants generally don't talk to reporters about their jobs asylum officers in particular just don't have much of a public face they're really like they are really really leery and there's you know a lot of internal pressure not to like i i found out through back channels last year when I got a, you know, kind of an interim, here's what you're supposed to do in the meantime while we figure out what this is ultimately going to look like and posted that memo that like there was a lot of, oh my gosh, who sent that memo to that reporter going around. Um, So it's, you know, this is not a, a zero risk thing, but I had several asylum officers talk to me kind of as, you know, in their function as union members saying it is a labor concern for us that we're not being allowed to do our jobs. And it was just a lot of like, Really worrisome stuff about people who are being trained as professionals to, you know, to judge when someone is being persecuted because of their, you know, ethnicity or because of their, because they're like a member of a particular group, um, either not, you know, not having the evidence to like on paper to make that claim because they're not being allowed to like make the legal arguments and the inferences that they're usually allowed to make. Or being straight up told by headquarters, no, we don't think this qualifies. You you have to, you know, you have to write on the
3: form that this person is safe. So my question here, I kind of want to back up a little Mm -hmm. bit and talk a little bit about what are the impacts of these policies? My understanding of how asylum has worked has been in like very specific cases. Um, For instance, uh, people fleeing anti-LGBT laws in the Gambia with whom I've spoken um, in In the olden days, um, when I worked a lot on LGBT rights, who were able, you know, the idea of what was considered a credible, credible fear, a credible threat was very specific to those particular environments. And so I kind of want to get a little back up a little bit to talk about, okay, how does this shift the experience that asylum seekers will endure where. Being, you know, there's been a lot of talk in kind of far-right media about how, like, oh, asylum seekers are being coached yeah. by their attorneys, which if anyone has ever had an attorney for any of these purposes, you know that it's not coaching to have an attorney tell you, OK, here is what's going to happen. Here's what they're going to ask you, because that's just how you're a good attorney in these cases. But I kind of want to hear from you. Like, how does this shift what the experiences of asylum seekers is go- are going to look like?
2: Right. I mean, I, the, the coach thing gets it like it gets on my nerves because frankly if you've talked to asylum seekers um they don't have as much understanding of what asylum is right. as you would as like as coaching like i've talked to people who were seeking asylum who thought that because they had relatives in the US they were going to get asylum like that is not at all how it works to the contrary if anything saying that you're coming because you have a relative in the US is going to be used to indicate that you aren't that you're right. coming because for other reasons. So like it's the the information ecosystem that people have is like and you know this is a hobby horse of mine so if you've listened to me on this or other podcasts you're probably aware of it like it's a really big hairy question. Um but you're right. It's in the absence of somebody telling you here is what they're going to ask, it's really really hard to offer up information that happens to check the right boxes. And so for one thing, people don't have a lot of experience in Mexico. Like a lot of the people who are coming up now are coming through bus routes where like they've only spent a few days in Mexico. They don't necessarily know what it would be like to spend weeks in Mexico. Right. Um, And even those who have had negative experiences like One of the things that I heard from a bunch of asylum officers was that, you know, people had 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 like had experiences with cartels during their journey up through Mexico. But when asked because, you know, you can't like that is not sufficient to be to say, oh, okay, you're in danger. You have to establish that the government of the country like would refuse to protect you. So when they're asked, like, okay, so do you think the Mexican police would be able to like keep you safe? They're like, I don't know you know, they, they have no experiences with right. the Mexican police. They can't say like, you know, whereas if they had had more experience in Mexico and talked to people, they probably would know things like, uh, lots of the, you know, many of the Mexican police are in league with the cartels or, right. you know, and that was not expertise. That's expertise that asylum officers are typically trained to have because they're used to looking into, okay, in this particular case, here is the particular relevant country, like generally called COI, country of origin information, right. that like I know that I can bring to bear to assess the you know, the credibility and seriousness of this claim, I can use my kind of case write-up to say, hey, given what I was told by this person and what I know of the the facts on the ground and what I know of the law, I'm going to braid those three together and make an assessment. They're only using one of those strands in this. It's a very – it's a much more cursory thing. And it's a higher standard they have to meet. So basically, there's this like – you know, in theory, it's a more likely than not standard. So you have to get to like a 51 percent probability standard. But the only thing they have to go on with that is what this individual asylum seeker is saying about a country that they don't really know.
3: Which is going to be incredibly complicated, where if you're going based um, on country of origin and your understanding is, OK, this has, you know, the. Let's say that the reason that the asylum is being sought, it, are, are they arguing that that it needs to come from the government level? So, for example, there are um, there have been a numerous stories about uh, trans people who are attempting to get asylum in the United States because they're fearing, they're fleeing discrimination and abject violence in countries that technically do not have, say, like an anti-trans law on the books or laws that basically are saying like, yes, you should absolutely discriminate against this group of people. But that's still taking place anyway. You know, I'm thinking, uh, for example, of Brazil, um, where kind of a, the new rise of the far right has really imperiled LGBT Brazilians. And so some are beginning to seek asylum elsewhere. But because the government, or, or, you know, I'm just double checking, because the government of Brazil does not have a like, Trans people are bad and should go to bad prison, like because they don't have that law in the books is from the argument of this, these kind of new regulations. Would that essentially be like, well, you're not in adequate danger because this isn't coming from the government level? So I want to I mean, I want to be clear about like what this applies to. Right. This
2: is just for people who are coming into the U.S. from Mexico who aren't f- Mexican, who are from other right. countries who are seeking okay. asylum. Yeah. So, and like and it's not this is not is like, to Mexico as a
4: waiting room. Well, it, like, it, I some mean, it, it,
2: right. Like it it is, but it's only for some people. Right. right. And it's not it's still not clear how exactly they're they're picking who is getting sent back to wait in Mexico and who isn't. It's not for everybody. In theory, the Mexican government is like doesn't want everybody getting sent back and it can't right. – can't, they can't be sent back without the consent of the Mexican government because otherwise they'd just be waiting on bridges. So like we're currently dealing with hundreds a week. It's, It probably would increase if it were allowed to expand along the entire border. But like it's limited. It's just not – we don't know if it's targeted. But that aside, like yeah, there are, there are really complicated questions here of what – um, you know th- what it looks like for a government to be unwilling or unable is the legal term to right. protect somebody. There are also really complicated questions about non-state persecution, which, like, you know, we've I, I think we've gone into here in the past. Like, a lot of these are claims about you know cartels or gangs or other non-state actors that have a lot of power, and there are really complicated issues in asylum law of when that counts as persecution and when it doesn't. So, like. It's, yeah, these are not super easy claims to assess, um, but they're being, you know, trying to assess them in like a 40-minute interview where you aren't allowed to bring things you know to bear is like a really, it's a really big question. And the other part of this is even when people think that they are dealing with someone who's made a persuasive case, like in some cases, they're getting told by, you know, every, in theory, every screening interview is reviewed by a supervisor. In practice like not everything the supervisor isn't like standing there on the spot doing a review but like that's standard practice. For this yes the the, the supervisor is like right there doing kind of a spot check before the decision is finalized but I was also hearing these stories of like headquarters nebulously sending back these reports saying we don't think this rises to the standard you can't say that this person passes the screening and like getting into specifics about like well the they said that they were kidnapped by the cartels but the cartels didn't name the group that you said they were being persecuted on behalf of and therefore that doesn't count like yeah, that's that's so. a
3: weird difference between like kind of a an indi- individualized experience of persecution versus a group experience of dis- of persecution and that's ooh that's complicated
4: right, well here let, let's take a break here cuz then i then i want to get into some of the the legal relevance yeah
3: yeah yeah
1: support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the harris school of public policy
0: You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future
4: to learn more and support their cause. So at a, at a very high level, right, it, it seems like the basic issue here is that American law, as it exists, makes provision. For people to make asylum claims. Yes. And Donald Trump does not think that it should. Right. That like Donald, Donald Trump's like stated view is that the country is full, that we don't need more people from shithole countries, et cetera. And it's not at all uncommon to have an incumbent president who wants American public policy to be something other than yes. what the legal status quo is. I
3: would also note, though, uh, just to chime in, that from the you know Im- immigration restrictionist side, mm-hmm. they've, there's been a lot of criticism of even that, because while simultaneously arguing that the country is full, there's been an expansion. An ex- Expansion, argued, of H-1B visas. Sure. And so, you know, full is a real
4: relative term. H, these are H-2, right. But, but I mean, just to say- H-2Bs. H-2Bs. Oh, H2Bs. But just to say, like, this is a, a very banal thing that happens in American politics. Yes. right. Is you have a president who has strong feelings about public policy, but what the law says is different from what he wants the law to say. This happened to Barack Obama all the time. Happened to George W. Bush all the time. It's just how our constitutional system works. Then what a president in that situation typically does is they both like try to persuade Congress, but they also try to like – they like pour over the U.S. code (laughs) and they like try to come up with what can we do. Right. And so you come up with some stuff and then you get sued on the other side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen this. Yes, that is.
2: This is basically Matt has just given us the 2019 version of how a bill becomes a law. It really is like the executive makes policy. The judicial branch approves the policy or fails to approve or like or enjoins the policy. And the legislative branch twiddles its thumbs.
4: Right. And, And this is where I mean, I think this is very relevant because this whole remain in Mexico thing. Right. This is basically. Who knows? Stephen Miller, somebody, is trying to come up with a, a a loophole inside what he sees as a loophole in American law, which is that you get to hang out in the United States right. for X years while you wait for your hearing, and, and during that two-year period, anything could happen. Right. right, and so like he doesn't like that, so it would be better if you had to wait in. Mexico,
2: right? Like if you abscond into Mexico and do not return to finish your asylum proceedings, that is like no skin off the U.S. government's nose.
4: Right, and and just be because in particular that like the policymakers, like they don't care about whether or not people with valid asylum claims get in. Like this is not a concern of theirs. But critically, it is a concern of the statute, <laughs> right? And, and and this is why the, the question of what the asylum officers say is happening is important, right? Because if you're a judge looking at this, right, when the Justice Department's lawyers show up, Right. They're going to get asked a question like, isn't it all just like Iglesias laid out there that like the president's tweeting about how the country is full? And so he's trying to deny valid asylum claims. And the GOJ lawyers are going to be like, no, 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 That is a
2: much more interesting uh, hearing than the hearing that actually happened in the (laughs) Ninth Circuit. (laughs) But, you know, also slightly more informed about actual immigration law than the hearing that happened in the Ninth Circuit. And
4: we've had now Supreme Court rulings, right, that like tweets don't count. Right. And stuff like that. I mean, that. yes. It- so, so, so they'll come and say, no, no, look, guys, look, I don't care what was tweeted. We are really just trying to design a policy here that is going to it's called the migrant protection protocol.
3: <laughs> Protections not, right there not, in not, the name. Not in
4: Mexico. We are trying to make this work. We really want people with valid claims to have their claims made. We want everybody to be safe, blah, blah, blah. So, like, an important piece of evidence on the other side is, like, what do the asylum officers say is actually happening? So,
2: that is – I'm not sure that you understand just how deep into the weeds you've invited me to go on the uh, enshrinement of non-refoulement in U.S. asylum law. Um,
3: Because this about to be the actual actual, squared? What the actual DOJ
2: lawyers – not the DOJ lawyers in your head who are making much more interesting arguments are arguing is that they don't technically have any legal obligation to make sure that people aren't going to be in danger in Mexico because what the statute says is that you cannot return somebody to their home country if they'd be if they'd be persecuted there. So as long as Mexico is giving them an assurance that they're not going to turn around and deport them back to Honduras, then they're that they've checked that box sufficiently. The argument that the ACLU is making at present is that there are minimal protections for like Non-refoulement that are enshrined in regulation for like you should at least have an interview where there can be a lawyer there, right? Mm -hmm. There should be like a standard that is lower than the more likely than not standard, and that the you know that it they do in fact that the U.S. does in fact have an obligation to be doing something to make sure that people aren't unsafe in Mexico. Um, But like because this is a because the U.S.'s official position is this is something. Having any kind of screening interview where there's any possibility that you will be allowed to stay in the US, and like probably detained, but allowed to stay in the US. Is something we are doing out
4: of the goodness of our hearts. Okay, and so, so their position that, is there's like, as long a new... as we're not sending you to Guatemala. Yes. we, in principle, yes. we can do whatever we want. Right. We could send you all to Tajikistan.
2: Well, it's the, 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 they're saying that they can they can send them back to wait in Mexico because the statute says they can. Right. That like we're still allowing your asylum claim to go forward. Sure. It's fine. Which is basically the argument that I've had, you know, in kind of my previous conversations with DHS officials about this program. It's been like yes, of course there's going to be a gap between what asylum officers are used to and what we're doing here because what we're doing is a its a blank slate. Like we do not have to follow the existing regulations because this is a different thing. The claims that the asylum officers are making though are that like they're, it's not just that they are being asked to meet a standard that they think is like unreasonably high. It's that the public argument that trained asylum officers are making assessments is is wrong and that it is a broader challenge to the discretion that they have as asylum officers, which gets into like, if you remember the arguments over immigration during the Obama era, there was a lot of consternation from ICE agents about we think that the Obama administration is telling us how to do our jobs and that they're wrong, right? That we need to have the kind of latitude to decide who is important to go after, that we think it is important to go after people just because they're in the U.S. illegally and we have, you know, like and we've found them. Um, And the, the Obama administration is getting in the way of us doing our jobs by telling us we can't do that. There's something similar now happening on the asylum side with what the with what these asylum officers told me is like we are trained to be the people who make this assessment on behalf of the US government. Political considerations appear to be getting in the way of us doing our jobs and therefore there is a violation of our role in the system. Mm-hmm.
3: So, my question um just kind of going for that point is you made the comparison to kind of ICE agents under the Obama administration but there is an understanding that if an administration has prioritized, like, for instance, if they have prioritized a specific emphasis here, you know, if let's say in the the f- post-Trump future that will someday exist, is the understanding that this could entirely be, you know, that we could go, we could return to kind of the pre-Trump version of asylum or is, you know, how are how are administrations the constant you know flows and changes of asylum the understandings of asylum law how are those likely to change if there were a future you know a hypothetical democratic president or someone else you know how how would those relationships shift as a result of these changing administrations because it seems you know if i'm an asylum seeker and I'm basically, you know, if it's 2019, am I just going to be kicking it in northern Mexico until hypothetically January 2021 and then giving us another shot? I think
2: the there, there is a lot there about kind of the institutional cultures of various government agencies that I think is way more than we could tackle in even a season of podcasts. Um, but what I want to stress with the end of your question is like, Again, people don't necessarily have a super nuanced understanding of what um, what the policy situation on the ground is like. We know that the fact of Donald Trump coming into office appears to have deterred people from coming to the United States for a few months. Uh, that didn't necessarily last, and like the fact of Donald Trump continuing to threaten to shut down the border, et cetera, isn't stopping people from coming. And I mean, what could argue know, it was make- ca-
3: causing people to try to get over f- sooner? Yeah, I've I've heard that argument. I don't know that we have the facts to
2: support it, but like it's an open question. Um, but people are making assessments that they may not be assessing the risk of uh, the of what's in the US accurately but they are making the assessment that no matter that despite donald trump being in office it is worth it to try to come here and like that is you know i that's important both because it means that if you change the like the argument that people who are not Donald Trump uh, who are not Stephen Miller in the Trump administration make is if you pull x y and z levers you remove incentives to come to the United States you will change that decision making calculus and people because they don't understand you know it, and people who currently underestimate the risk will end up safer um but also kind of because I don't think we're going to see people. Not, certainly not because of the Remain in Mexico thing, because again, it's not even a universal program, right? Like, there's a non-zero chance that you don't get that you don't get returned. So, I, I would not overstate the kind of effect of this particular thing on migration flows. I think a lot of things that the Trump administration is doing do have a deterrent component to them. This one does not. It's very much about preventing people from absconding, but. The question of, like, what this does for asylum law and policy down the road is it it's a good one because of the, you know, like, people in government, you know, like, don't necessarily have to stick around forever, right? right. Um, this is—it is not new to anybody who's been following, like, government under Trump that a lot of longtime civil servants are— extremely frustrated with what they're doing or what they're not doing or who's above them or that kind of thing. And that there's a substantial amount of turnover in the federal government. We talked
4: about this during the shutdown. Did they ever get around to firing the head of USCIS? Uh, no, they
2: not. No, 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 no. They so that have, wound they up not, not happening? He's, he's still there. Oh. Um, and frankly, and frankly, this is actually a lot of the we know that a lot of the conflict between him and the White House is that the White House thinks that he should be doing more to tell his asylum officers. You can't let as many people through their credible fear screenings and he's saying the regulations say what they say so this is an interesting it's it's a window into what it could i you know the people who i talk to are worried that like if you replace the head of uscis with somebody who doesn't have a the regulations say what they say attitude that this kind of the interference they're running into or they 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 get they assume they're running into yeah, gonna on going to MPP 12, is gonna, right. like it's going to become that's what everything is going to be it's right. not just going to be this one program um but you know the like a lot of the asylum c- core who i talked to and i talked to some people who are very who, are, who have been there for a while and some people who have not and like there's a lot of yeah what the hell are we doing here um you know there it's just there's a lot of kind of Moral injury to people who aren't necessarily bleeding hearts. Like I, it's. I think it's really easy to assume that if you're going to do this, that you must be some kind of like deep state. Like, oh, I'm just going to get everybody into the country because I feel bad for them. Like, they're civil servants. They're doing their jobs. They right. understand when somebody is like probably lying to them, and that and that doesn't necessarily rise to the that like, when someone doesn't rise to the level of you should be allowed to stay in the country, but. They think that this is a violation of the kinds of things that they're asked to, like of the discretion that they're supposed to have, of the training that they're supposed to have, and you know, it's it's not very easy to go to work every day when you worry that your name is on a form that represents what you feel is a violation of international law.
4: All right, let's uh, let's let's take a break here. Then I I, I want to ask you some some naive questions. Yay! So here's I feel like a. Uh, like a like a normie view of all this, mm-hmm. right? When somebody is fleeing persecution in their country, right, that's usually something to do with their country, where <laughs> they're leaving, and then they have fled. And so if you hear about somebody who has fled Tanzania right. because they're being persecuted by the government of Tanzania, but now they are in Morocco, right. you're like, okay. Now, it's possible that you get some secondary persecution also in Morocco. Like, that would be an interesting story. But the basic expectation would be that a person fleeing persecution in Tanzania is going to be safe when they are not in Tanzania. And so the entire prospect of all this transit through Mexico, of people allegedly being persecuted in Guatemala or Honduras, is just per se fishy. Not that it's like, inconceivable that a person fleeing persecution from Guatemala could also be persecuted in Mexico, but that as a rule, a person, you could think of a million good reasons why someone might prefer to live in the United States than in Mexico, but that if specifically the issue is you are being persecuted by the government of your country, which is not Mexico, and you are now in Mexico, that like there should be a strong presumption that like, your flight from persecution is done.
2: Yes. I mean, I think that that is um, – it's certainly the Trump administration's argument. It's why the standard is so high and it's why you have to volunteer that you are worried about – like it's why you're not being asked. Are you worried about being returned to Mexico? Because this, pre- the, mm-hmm. the presumption is – If you're just like worried that it's not safe there, that there is high crime rate like that is that's not a sufficient. That's not that's not a persecution claim. Mm -hmm. Um, That is not a you do not have you know, you're not worried about having a particular worry about that you're going to be tortured. Uh, if you go back,
3: but so, that, that does go to your earlier point that like if you, you haven't been in Mexico for all that terribly long. So how the fuck would you know <laughs> if you, um, you know, LGBT migrant or person fleeing from MS-13 or another cartel in Colombia or something like that? How would you on earth know that? Yes, this, you know, I'm way safer in Baja or way safer in like specific areas of Mexico than I would be back there because you just got there.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that is a it, it, it's that is a fair consideration, um, but the the assumption underlying a lot of this is that many of these people have um, non governmental persecution claims, right? right? So that is both a well, that means that their asylum cases are probably on the bubble anyway. Uh, but the flip side of that is that a non governmental persecutor doesn't isn't necessarily going to stop at the border of Mexico and Guatemala, right? Like the last time that I was in Tijuana in February, uh, every single asylum seeker I talked to said at one point during their story, and then when I was in Tapachula in Mexico waiting for my temporary transit visa to come up here, I saw a member of the group that was persecuting me. And like, I mean, they didn't literally say like a member of the group that was persecuting me, but like they said, like, I saw one of those people, like I saw one of the people who threatened me, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, when everyone is saying something like that, like by the fourth or fifth time, you start having something going off in your head like this is an interesting consistency that also happens to answer a question of why isn't Mexico safe for you that maybe is a strategically beneficial thing to talk about that may or may not be true but like it is also true that there are such huge numbers of Central Americans going through Mexico right now sure. that like it is not implausible no. that in a very large group of people for exactly the same reasons that conservatives in the US are concerned about criminals and gang members sneaking through in these large groups that people could be doing that in Mexico so by the that's same kind of
4: but by the same token right Dara I mean MS-13 and the CAE whatever, um, <laughs> these, these are active in the United States, right? Like if you have been like targeted for death by MS-13 in some incredibly specific way, it's not like going to Long Island or Northern Virginia is going to offer you incredibly safe – Haven well, I
2: think MS-13 is not as well—the the U.S. branches of MS-13 aren't even as well coordinated with each other as all that, much right. less with the Salvadoran MS-13.
3: But also there's the understanding that, like, you know, the police department of— Fairfax, Virginia, is not working hand in glove with MS-13. Yeah, I
4: mean, hypothetical. I, this seems very fuzzy, a very fuzzy continuum to just general- I feel like that's general, just immigration
3: policy but no, wait, but I mean,
4: Just the general point that like the standard of living in the United States is higher than the standard of living in Mexico, which in turn is higher than the standard of living in Guatemala, Like there are yeah, a no. number of good reasons to want to make these northern- moves. But they seem fairly disconnected to me from a traditional understanding of what it means to be fleeing persecution.
2: Yeah, you're right. The traditional understanding of asylum is very obviously a post-Holocaust understanding, right? Mm -hmm. It is the belief that government will say we are doing xy and z to ab and c groups because they're bad mm-hmm. and that therefore you will be able to say as a member of ab and c groups i am in danger of xy and z happening to me if i go back to my home country and and this has been the case for several decades now like that doesn't apply to states that don't have a strong central government that has full and undisputed control over its right. territory it doesn't apply to states where you know there is Corruption to the extent that the de facto controlling entity in any given neighborhood is not the government. It doesn't apply to groups that could be persecuted, you know, by virtue of like being, you know, I I guess an easy example of particular social group, which is the kind of elastic clause of asylum law Mm -hmm. is like is is profession, right? Like uh-huh. there were a bunch of, in the last decade, there were a bunch of journalists from Mexico who would claim asylum in the United uh-huh. States saying, as a journalist, I am being persecuted. And like, yeah, there's a pretty good argument that right. you are being targeted because you are a journalist, not because of who you are individually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the concept of persecution is just elastic enough to overlap with the current flow of migration that is absolutely kind of compelled, mm-hmm. if not coerced, right? That like people are leaving Guatemala and Honduras because they do not feel they can survive if they stay, you know, like, and and that gets into, okay, what's the, when is someone leaving primarily because of poverty and primarily because of violence? Right. When is somebody leaving primarily because of uh, government you know, oppression because of their political opinion and primarily because of violence. Like, it's really, really hard to tease all this stuff out. But
4: I mean, we're seeing more More Guatemalans are arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border than were yeah. in the 50s when they had a coup and a civil war and a genocide.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's not like the question of if so many more people are leaving now, why weren't more people leaving 50 years ago? Like, Asylum claims are supposed to be, like, individualized, right? So it's not – but there is – it's a weird thing where no one is going to leave a country unless they – unless it hits a particular threshold of, like, unacceptability. Right. But you don't want to create a situation in which the only people who are allowed to seek asylum are people who can demonstrate, I would have had a perfectly fine life in my home country except that the government or except that this persecutor, right? Like, you don't – because a lot of people – who a lot of people who are being persecuted wouldn't necessarily have had permanently fine lives otherwise. So you don't want to kind of raise the standard for if there's also an economic need consideration, then you can't play for asylum. but I
4: mean, it's about the the Mexico versus U.S. kind Uh, of nexus here, right? Because like, okay, I don't know. I've been to Mexico. It's poorer than the United States. It has a higher crime rate. Um, If you have relatives who are from Central America, it's actually fairly likely that you might have relatives in the United States rather than in Mexico like there's just there's lots of good reasons that a person who has to flee I mean you think back to the Holocaust analogy, right I mean when 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 jews were were trying to get out of of Germany before it became completely impossible right typically they would wanted to go to the United States right. which had a large diaspora was a good place to be all things considered but you're desperate to leave persecution in Germany, right? If you can manage to get into the Dominican Republic or Argentina or wherever, yeah. you 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 take it, right? And there was great difficulty in getting in anywhere. Yes. But if you could get in somewhere, you were now not in Nazi controlled yes. Germany, right? And so if somebody was making an application, a, a Jewish refugee in the early 30s, not from Germany to the United States, but from Argentina To the United States, right? Like you would not be saying like, I don't understand why you left Germany, right? But like I don't understand why we have a specific obligation to let you in now just because like there's some problems in the country where you're at. that Like we were initially interested in the extraordinary circumstances that led you to flee your home. But like now you're not in your home. So there
2: there are two provisions in US law that are supposed to address this and neither one of them is in place at present or like in the when we're talking about the the MPP program. One is that the US could do with Mexico what it's done with Canada and sign a safe third country agreement that says, as far as we're concerned, this is a perfectly okay place for people to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if you come through one of, you know, if you come through one of the two countries that is a signatory to this agreement and apply for asylum in the other one, they're going to send you back to the first to to the prior country. They're going to say, like, you should, you know. So like Haitians
4: can't try to make their way to Montreal. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And this is actually a Big. It, it was certainly for a while in Canada a big domestic – because, like, there has been a real uptick in people who have made claims that, you know, they are in danger in the United States. Right. And, like, they are not – you know, they're, like, statutorily in a really, really tricky position uh-huh. in demonstrating that, like, no, really, this country that you say is safe is not safe for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Mexico won't sign that. Mexico is, as a matter of fact, the way that Mexico is kind of blown was blowing smoke when it when details of this plan of the migrant protection protocols leaked last fall was we would never do anything like that. We've said we're not going to sign a safe third country agreement. So they have. So Mexico's already,
4: position is that Mexico is an unsafe place to be.
2: Mexico's position is that well, this this gets into kind of the other the other thing that I um, that I wanted to say going back to like. You know, how likely is it that someone's actually going to be in danger in Mexico? Is Mexico is in a really difficult domestic position right now uh, where they are having they are having to figure out as a polity their attitude towards Central American migrants because they are kind of on the cusp of being a receiving country more than a sending country and obviously a transit country at present. Um, there are real there's like simultaneously a desire to have Central American labor in some places and some really strong localized political backlashes, especially in border areas with like, what the hell are all of these Central Americans doing up here? Uh, there are racial politics involved. It is not a coincidence. that There's a lot more hostility in the less indigenous northern parts of Mexico towards Central Americans than in the more indigenous southern parts. So. It's really there is a good argument that like Mexico doesn't necessarily want all of central like, you know, whatever population of whatever percentage of the population of Guatemala and Honduras is currently leaving, like doesn't want necessarily want all of them in. Mexico just wherever, it does kind of want to be able to recruit them to like southern Mexico uh-huh. uh, or, you know, to to rather like it wants to be able to like develop southern Mexico so that they could stay there. It wants to be able to have them in specific places in the north. Um, but it's still trying to figure out how to do that. Right. It doesn't necessarily have the kind of state capacity. And so, you know, the Mexican government under Andres Manuel López Obrador has kind of vacillated between we're going to give everybody visas because it's we want them to be safe. We're going to round everybody up and keep them from going any further north because we don't want them going to the United States. So it's like it's been really fraught and really weird. And so the question of whether being a Central American migrant in Mexico makes you a targeted and persecuted group is kind of an open one. And that's something that, you know, something that the I don't I'm not even sure if it made it into the piece, but like a couple of the asylum officers I talked to brought up is like we are by virtue of sending these people back to a country where we know there is like a lot of anti-migrant sentiment where police officers will sometimes like there have been a couple of reports of police officers like arresting uh, LGBT migrants in Tijuana and like, you know, keeping them in jail and abusing them. Where we know where criminals will target migrants because they don't have leverage and they know the police won't necessarily protect them. Like, there is an argument that by sending more of these people into this country, the u s. is c- helping to create a particular social group that, in theory should qualify for asylum. And like, that is an argument that is not obviously legit on its face. You would want to, like, have it vetted through some kind of policymaking process. But it's, It's definitely part of the concern that asylum officers are thinking about is like, given what we know about Mexico right now, can we really say that just by virtue of being a Central American migrant who is not allowed to leave the country of Mexico, that we're not going to send people back to persecution?
3: Yeah, that's. I'm really struck by the difference between kind of the in, like individual experiences of persecution versus group experiences of persecution, yeah. and how those group experiences of pers- persecution can meld and change. And but I, I want to get back like this idea of asylum seeking is still, and you brought up the point that this is largely a remnant of you know Holocaust survivors, and so. You know, I'm thinking about specific groups, like for instance, like Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia, or there there are specific groups experiencing those specific forms of persecution in countries around the world. But then, you know, you get to that the the question of like, does it have to be America? Does it have to be like, what is it here? And how would? And then you know, you're asking asylum officers to answer these questions when policy and Congress seem unable to, and that seems bad.
2: Yeah, I mean there are two really really big questions that I think uh you know that that maybe deserve to be revisited in a like post post holocaust context, right? Like now that we've seen now that the global situation is not what it was in 1945 and we've had this regime in yeah. place like a do we think that the classical categories of asylum that there's a, a very important, clear, bright line difference between the classical categories of asylum law and like other bases on which groups could be persecuted or targeted. And B, how do we feel about, how do you Like individual polities feel about their individual obligation to take those people in. The US has historically been much more willing to say it is part of our national identity that we take people in who would be in danger other places. They are obviously under Trump no longer saying that. The problem is no one else is either, right? Right. Like Canada got some credit under Trudeau in like 2016, 2017 for taking in a lot of Syrians. But the Canadian immigration system, as you will remember, if you listen to Alive Weeds from I think fall of 2017, Mm -hmm. is a Lot more flexible than the U.S. system, and like the you know the Trudeau government has like changed and emphasized decided it needs to emphasize different kinds of immigrants. Um, other countries, you know, European countries certainly aren't stepping up because they are you know the 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 phenomenon of having an asylum crisis and therefore becoming less. Amenable to humanitarian flows generally, or Mm -hmm. refugee resettlement in particular, is something that like is not just a U.S. problem. So right now, you know, there really are questions of okay. So Donald Trump will occasionally like get up in front of international audiences and say that there is a regional responsibility to take care of migrants. and then in the US context, we'll say, well, they need to stay where they are and make their countries great, great again. But I mean, so you like have- the question of who is obligated and whether, for example, the US does have a regional obligation to Central American migrants that it might not have to Syrian migrants, or whether when we say regional, what we really mean is they should stay somewhere where other people speak Spanish, even though that's not the understanding that like you know, northern Mexicans have of right. whether Central Americans are part of their culture or not. But I mean,
4: there's there's geographical and then there's ethnocultural yes. considerations, right? So that like, for example, in Spain, right, a lot of the discourse there is, well, when we had all these immigrants in the aughts from Latin America, that was fine. But now we have all these northern African Muslims arriving, and that's really bad. And right? you see
3: the same thing in Germany and in other countries where they're uh, basically right. they've decided is it, that they're going to pay North African countries to keep right, right, people right. there by but any I mean, it means just, necessary. It, it
4: happens to be the case right. that Spain is close to Muslim North Africa and very far away from Latin America, even though obviously, I mean, there is a significant cultural difference between Guatemala and Spain. but. In many ways, a a lower one. They are speaking with Spanish-speaking Catholics. Uh, the United States is close to Latin America, but you know has I would say a uh, contested internal political discourse <laughs> of what our cultural relationship to to, to those countries is. Right, right, and,
2: and now so does Mexico, and like this is why it's so right. It and is it, very interesting that the particular government of Mexico, like AMLO, didn't get elected talking about immigration one way or the other, right? And now his government is in a very tricky position as this becomes a salient topic of Mexican, like a super, super salient topic of Mexican politics, kind of for the first time
4: and I guess if I was to try to adopt a more high-minded and far-sighted version of the Trump worldview, I feel like they are risking sort of like crushing the Mexican polity. Mm-hmm. In a way that is going to produce a, from their point of view, much worse migration yeah, situation I, I, here. And I would, I mean, if we, if you're trying to think about the demographics of the United States and Latin America and the 50-year trajectory of this whole thing, right? Like making Mexico not be a failed state seems like should be like a high priority, right and creating a situation where they're being like crushed by population flows in both directions as the US tries to like repel people back into there seems uh, suboptimal i don't know like i i feel like you want to like actually try to like really work this out on a government to government level in some way that's going to be the, the, something that the mexicans can actually do
2: right i mean I, I feel like this is this is kind of the conclusion that we come to on every weeds episode about this like this kind of regional issue is like you know, I've I've kind of heard something similar on the, on the failed state concern with regard to the Central American countries. People are leaving. Like, if we allow all these large numbers of people to leave, and our our response to that crisis is, well, they can just stay in the US instead. What does that do to the long term trajectory
4: of oh. those countries? And like,
2: <laughs> there is a kind of blunt and not super uh, knowledgeable about how law works, Trumpian version of that argument, which is you should stop people from leaving. And there's a better version of that argument, which like means, okay, so we stop people from coming, but we also invest more in foreign aid, right? Like we do more things to help build up an actual you know to address the problems that are making people feel they need to leave um or we work more with Mexico on a humanitarian basis to like expand their refugee you know their refugee and asylum system we like make sure that they are uh We expand their state capacity so that instead of vacillating between crackdowns and no crackdowns, they're doing more to actually, you know, entice people to come to the places where they want migrants to come, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, like there's a version of that that treats this as a regional policy issue uh, rather than a, as long as they're not in US territory, then we're A OK. But like that's the entire premise of the. MPP right. program is like the important thing is that they not be on U.S. soil.
4: All right. Well, the important thing is that you keep listening to our podcasts uh, out there. So uh, th- thanks to everybody uh, for listening. Thanks to uh, Darren Jane and as always to our producer uh, Jeff Geld and uh, The Weeds will return on Tuesday.